couple more I saw come in. Anybody need a handout as we get going this morning in class? Raise your hand if you don't need one. Everybody got one. Good. Okay. Anybody comes in and needs a handout, I'm going to set some right here. Carl, you want to take them? Um, we are picking up this week with uh, two miracles that I have grouped together. And, of course, you can see that I've titled the lesson, lesson number eight here being Fishing with the Savior. And uh, I thought that was pretty appropriate as we look at these two different miracles together in this class this morning. I think that these miracles give us uh, somewhat of an idea of what it would be like and what lessons we can learn if we were out uh, with Christ and we were actually being involved in, in fishing with them. And I'm going to try to use my phone. Let's see if it works. It did work. And uh, I think these, these lessons are going to give us, uh, these miracles at least, give us several lessons that we can take from them and apply them to our lives to understand a little bit of how Christ undergirded the faith of the disciples in these situations. And I really enjoyed studying these different miracles here because uh, there's some that I really didn't take and, and understand the chronological order of where they placed actually uh, with respect to the timeline of Christ's ministry. And when you look at these two miracles, one found, of course, in Luke chapter 5 would be what I would call the first catch of fish, the first great catch, or some people call it a draft, uh, which is actually an English word, which means an incredible amount. I don't like the English word. I think it makes no sense to me. So I just call it an incredible catch or a great catch of fish. You see, the first one in Luke chapter 5, there's a couple of allusions to some of the similar facts uh, of the situation of the calling of the disciples uh, that surrounded that, uh, that account in Luke chapter 5 that you see in Matthew and Mark. So I put those scriptures there on your handouts as well for you to see those kind of parallel passages of the calling of the disciples. But the only time that, that you see in the scripture talking about this first great catch of fish is in Luke chapter 5. Uh, and this miracle that uh, we usually chronicle and list with miracles. Uh, I have a question whether it's a miracle or not, and I'll get to that in a second. But I think what you see is it seems and appears from the textual uh, criticism and the text of, the, of the, the passages here that it was a miracle. It was something that was beyond uh, the comprehension and the power of the disciples that were out there fishing on the lake, or actually the Sea of Galilee, Lake Genesaret, whatever term you want to call it. They were out there fishing, Luke chapter 5. You see the second great catch of fish in John chapter 21. Now, if you, if you look and you kind of put, if you have a chronological Bible, you'll kind of see the, the time frame that, that actually passes by between Luke chapter 5 and John chapter 21. And what you see is a great time frame has passed. Well, I say great, probably about three to four years, depending on how long you want to say Christ's ministry was. It's, usually they say it's about three years of ministry. Uh, of the Lord. So you, there's about three year time span almost from the first, the first great catch to the, the last great catch uh, that you see here in the gospel accounts of these miracles. And the only time that the second one is, is chronicled is in John chapter 21. And contextually, we'll get to this in a moment, but contextually, that's actually after the resurrection of Christ. And if you look at it, it would be what I believe, according to the scriptures, was the last miracle that Christ performed while here on earth. Uh, we can get into a debate on whether or not the ascension was actually a miracle of Christ. I would say it probably was not actually a miracle of Christ alone. It was a miracle of God. Uh, God ascended and, and brought his son back up. But again, we're getting off on tangents as to uh, that and that classification. And I don't think we need to go there. But this is the last miracle of Christ done on earth. 
So I think that's very interesting. We talked before previously about the first miracle being turning water into wine. We knew that was the first miracle that Christ performed. Here, it doesn't say it's the last miracle, but it's the last one that actually is uh, denoted for us in the Scriptures as being the last miracle that he performs before the ascension occurs. We see in Acts chapter 1. But chronologically, it appears that this is the last miracle that is performed. You know, as you think about it, I think it would be really amazing to go uh, fishing with Jesus. Uh, the only examples that we see in the scriptures of fishing with the Savior, uh, really there's not a lot of fishing necessarily that goes on. You know, I, I'm not a fisherman. And some of y'all who probably are fishermen may enjoy it. I, I never enjoyed it. I don't, I've gone fishing with my dad when I was little and my grandfather. Uh, my father-in-law likes to fish. He hadn't fished in a while, but I've never gone with him. Uh, I might enjoy going and sitting and just nowadays, now that I'm older, I guess, when I was a kid, it made no sense. You're just throwing uh, this line in the water with the worm or some kind of bait on it, and you're just sitting there. Now, I guess technically you could go fly fishing where you kind of have to move it in the water. You could, you could go out there and you could kind of, you know, cast it pretty far and kind of slowly reel it in so that, you know, that, that, that they're getting tantalized by this bait going in the water. It just made no sense to me as a kid. Uh, so I never really enjoyed going fishing. Uh, now, as an older guy, I probably would enjoy just to get away and have some calmness <laughs> around me to get away from the girls. But uh, you know, I didn't understand it as a kid, never really appealed to me. Uh, but obviously, there's much, uh, not necessarily Monica, but the other two girls. Everybody's looking at Monica like, whoa, go get away from Monica. Uh, Monica would like to get away and go fishing with me just to sit there and calm this too, and we leave the two at home. But anyway, um, you know, fishing to me seems more complex. Now, obviously, the way we fish with a rod and reel isn't necessarily the way that, that the disciples fish. I mean, to clarify that as well. If you went down to the Gulf and saw some of the shrimping that, w- that goes on down to the Gulf, it's probably more a- attuned to that type of fishing, where you put a large net into the water, and you drag that net somewhat uh, through the water to catch the fish up into the, the net. Uh, that's kind of what you see uh, described in the scriptures and what a lot of historians would look at and see. Uh, where it was involved in the fishing that goes on in the New Testament. And in fact, you see the fact that the, the, the disciples in these, these accounts, Luke chapter 5, they actually had finished and completed fishing, and they were cleaning their nets up. And so these nets were somewhat of a large uh, size. Other passages talk about that, that James and John were mending their nets. Uh, so obviously these are large-sized nets that were drawn in. They were, they were kind of used to, to kind of grab up and surround the fish. And bring them into the boat. And you see that in, the, in the, these two miracles as well. And the first one, of course, it was so large they could not get, you know, it was so big it almost tipped the boats over. Because there's so much of a great catch of fish. And the second one, uh, there was a very large amount of fish. Peter just said, forget you guys, I'm going to the shore. And leaves the, the rest of the, the, well there's a total of seven. So it leaves the other six there to try and grasp that uh, net by themselves. Uh, and they obviously had to struggle with that, bringing that to shore. Fishing with the Savior is a whole other concept, though, because you're really not sitting there dangling stuff over, waiting for something to occur. Jesus makes it happen. And I think that's phenomenal when you look at the passages here. You know, these disciples in both of these accounts here, and we'll get into the text in a moment, but uh, both of these accounts, whether it was at the the beginning of the Lord's ministry or the end of the Lord's ministry, uh, chronicle uh, the fact that the, the people were failing at the fishing on their own. They fished all night long. They caught nothing. And until Christ came on the scene and said, hey, throw your nets on this side of the boat or, or cast your nets over into the deep water, nothing occurred until Christ came on. They followed his instructions, his guidance. And then what you see is this great catch of fish. 
And so whether it's the beginning or the end of the ministry uh, that you see here, Christ, I believe by these miracles, made sure that the disciples uh, understood that if they followed his divine guidance, then he would provide for them. And I think you see both of these miracles, that provision of source. Now, when you get into the miracles, uh, these two miracles, as I said before, I, I, they, they, they definitely show us um, that this, this providential or this, this uh, taking care of. Uh, but the, the taking care of their needs and the protection of the disciples would reaffirm, would reaffirm their faith, would, would help undergird what they already believed. Because if you look at these situations, this isn't like the first interaction the Lord had with the disciples. Uh, in fact, if you look contextually in Luke chapter 5, when the Lord helped with this first miracle, of the, this first great catch of fish, just previously, which is a miracle we've already studied here, what does he do there? If anybody had Bibles open, you'll see it. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. We've already talked about that, right? So here we already see an interaction with Peter. Peter was already able to see the impact that Christ could have on them. Even before that, you see multiple other miracles and teachings in the book of Luke itself that sees chronologically before they were on the Sea of Galilee, they, they had faith. They had belief. They had a foundation uh, of sorts to, to give them knowledge of the, who Christ was and what he is able to do. So this wasn't the beginning point. But this point, as he had these disciples very there in close quarters, as he guided them with his knowledge, he guided them with his miraculous ability, he undergirded the foundations of their faith. And again, it kind of goes hand in hand with what we discussed and talked about last week as, as Christ walked on the water, as he, he, he showed them the power, his majesty, his glory. Christ was giving his disciples this what, what they needed to be able to go on and go forth from that point on. And in these lessons, you see him going and branching out, giving us some lessons that we obviously have used before, that we have looked at before previously, and that we have, uh, have used really to teach and to preach uh, a lot of these different um, lessons about going in and being a fisher of men. Fishers of men is the, the, the term used, and we get that from Luke chapter 5. Uh, but what I want to do is look at this, and I'm going to look at them one at a time if we have time. Hopefully we'll get through them both. I'm going to scoot through the first one so we can get to the second one for sure. But I want to look at these passages of Scripture. Let's read them together. Turn with me, if you would, Luke chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 1 through verse 11 and, and talk about this first large catch of fish that we see here in the, the, the passage of Scripture. On one occasion, it says, starting in verse 1, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, just a side note. Luke calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. It's actually the Sea of Galilee. And so there's different terms that are used here for this body of water. I don't want you to get confused and think, well, where's the Lake of Gennesaret? It's the same lake, same body of water, same Sea of Galilee that we hear talked about before. So just use different terms used by different men. Uh, don't want to get into to why that is or the historical nature of these terms. Just, just know it's the same body of water. He was standing by the Lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Hold on, not moving here. 
There we go. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners on the other boat to come and to help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Uh, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. This is what I would say would be the beginning of the ministry of of Jesus using the disciples. As you see the, the chronology of the scriptures here, there's an interaction before this. You look in a book, the book of John, of course, and, and you'll see the fact that there had been some interaction here before with Jesus and with the, the apostles or the disciples that are called here. Uh, you see that um, this catch of fishes here uh, would be a, 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 I think, a starting point of when they, they thoroughly understood and were un- astonished with the, the power uh, of the Lord. I think before, of course, he healed his mother-in-law, and she immediately got up and started serving on him. You know, I think, wow, they would have a wow factor there. Uh, but here is when you see, I think, the contrite Peter kind of coming, coming to terms with the fact of who this man is uh, called Jesus. Uh, we've already called him our Messiah. If you look over in John chapter 1, you know, when you think about Andrew going and finding Peter when he first saw Jesus, you know, he immediately went to Peter and he said, we have found the Messiah. So they understood at that concept that there was someone who was going to come and save them. So there was a beginning of the understanding. But until this point in time, whenever he brought all those fish, miraculously, I believe, upon the ship, uh, there was not a, a full breadth of the understanding of maybe his power and his awe. And I think Robert and I have, have kind of talked several times, several of his comments and several of mine have, have gone to the fact that you can't necessarily throw blame at these individuals because they didn't have the full understanding we may have today. You've got to kind of take them where they are with regard to their maturity of faith and understanding of who Christ was. And you kind of see that, I think, growing here in Peter. And why do you see that? Because at the point when this great number of fish were finally brought onto the boat, Peter fell to the ground. He didn't hesitate. He didn't think twice. At that point in time, his humility came through and Peter expressed himself as being a sinner before the almighty and the all-powerful Jesus Christ. And I think that in itself uh, symbolizes and epitomizes kind of the mentality of the maturing faith, the developmental psychology, so to speak, of, of the disciples of Christ. Because you see this slow growth and allowing them to understand maybe more fully who Christ is, what his, his purpose, his point was, and uh, to be able to see what they could be a part of. In Luke chapter 5, this first catch of the many fishes, of course, came when Peter and Andrew had attempted to catch fish in the Sea of Galilee. They had failed miserably the night before. They had stayed up all night trying to fish. By the way, just as a side note, Fishing at nighttime was a f- preferred time to fish. If you look back, and, I'm, and those who are much more knowledgeable to me, especially in this point of, uh, in this place in the world, uh, they would go out fishing at night. And that's when it was a better fishing, I guess, circumstance. I don't know if it's because it was so hot out, you know, because they didn't want to do it in the daytime. Uh, obviously, they say, and again, I'm not a fisherman, you know, fish 
are more conducive to, to cooler temperatures, are more likely to come up to the surface, possibly when it's cooler. And so they would fish maybe at night. That's just what I read. I'm not an expert. I just play one on Sunday mornings. Um, you know, so you see, you see the, the mentality of they have, have went all night long, could not do anything on their own. And then you see the Lord here trying to get Peter to cast his nets in the deeper part of the, of the water in, in the midst of the day. And you, you start seeing, I think, uh, the profound skepticism that Peter kind of has of God, God or Jesus or, or, or really, he says master. You know, he calls him master a lot. Master, I don't, I don't in his mind, he's thinking, I don't see how this is going to be much of a difference here. You know, we've worked all night. We've done everything we know to do. We're experienced fishermen. This is on our first rodeo here. And in his mind, he's probably thinking very skeptically, nothing's going to come of this because we've already done this before. And so you see the response here uh, with respect to uh, Peter pushing and casting his nets into the deeper uh, water here. And, of course, you see Peter's response showing several things. Uh, I've already mentioned the first one, really. You see his obstacle here. They were tired. They worked all night. Um, verse you know, 5 really shows this. It's no wonder that they doubted they would have a different result going back out again. Uh, they were kind of tired at that point in time. You see his reliance, though. He had an obstacle. His obstacle was really his own shortcomings himself, his own doubting. And then you see, though, his reliance on what matters. And what that reliance was on was upon God. It was upon Christ. Specifically in this situation, Christ himself told him to do something. And he says, you see in the passage of Scripture that we read a moment ago, because you're telling me this, I'll do it. You know, Lord, we've been out all night. (laughs) We fished. Uh, to no avail, but because you tell me to do this, Lord, I'm going to do it. And that's what he does. He goes out there, he relies upon the words of Christ. Uh, Although he was hesitant, he did it because the master asked him to. And then you see also in his response, you see his triumph. Even in the face of doubt, of fatigue, of disappointment, Peter and the others were victorious here into uh, catching this great amount of fish. Now, this was their livelihood. You have to understand that this is what they, they made money. This is how they sustained their living by, and that's catching fish. And so not being successful throughout the whole night may have had several repercussions for them physically speaking. Don't even get into the spiritual part at this point in time, but we're just talking physically. They were tired. They were fatigued. They needed to catch fish, but they were unsuccessful. And then you see their victory and their triumph here, uh, and they had this great load of fish that they would then be able to use and sell and do what they needed to. Robert.
Now, how often are we like Peter in our lives, where we're really so caught up in trying to do what, what we need to do or what we feel like is the primary focus of our lives? You know, like I said, they hadn't left their, you know, their, their normal everyday living at this point in time. You have to understand that. We always, I think in our minds, and maybe from being, being a kid and hearing all these stories growing up and stuff, in your mindset, you almost kind of think they always followed Jesus. You know, it's kind of like they were all born together. You know, they're just his disciples and they always followed him, you know, their whole life. Well, that's not true. They had a life before that that they were somewhat holding on to. And I think you're right. There was, there was a mindset that they had to be changed of these disciples realizing that God's going to provide for them. And again, that provision over them increases their faith to the point where they can fully rely upon Him. And I think that you kind of see that in that three-year ministry of Christ, they mature, they grow. They may not get the 100% concept because they still don't. You know, even when Christ was crucified and when he raised from the dead again, it's kind of like they still didn't get the whole picture. And I'm not trying to fault them necessarily, but there was a lack of wisdom or lack of knowledge there that they experienced. Even at the point of Christ's death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and even at his ascension, you see in Acts chapter 1, there's somewhat of a delusion there of even Christ setting up an earthly kingdom. They still didn't get it necessarily there. But you do see a maturity of faith from the point of they first followed Christ, building to the point whenever Christ died, it's kind of like this this balloon just deflated. And you do get into that next this next miracle, and I think that's kind of neat how they kind of go together. And you're right, it's the provisional aspect of it. Christ will provide. God will provide for us if we keep our priorities, if we follow and obey His commandments, if we follow the guidance, that spiritual guidance that He's given to us, He's going to bring about the things we need in life. And it kind of reminds me of Matthew 6, right, 33. The idea that Christ himself said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Well, what are all these things? Well, if you look in the context there, he's talking about not worrying about what you're going to eat, not worrying about the clothes that you're wearing. Those things are of secondary importance. Why? Promise is God. What's secondary is everything else. If we keep the primary focus on God, we are assured that if we are faithful, he's going to provide for us. The disciples didn't necessarily get it just yet. I think Peter started to understand. When he fell to his knees there, it's kind of like there's a little light switch that went on here that God's going to provide for me. But I, in my sinful state, am not even worthy to be standing next to this man. I'm not even worthy to be beside the Son of God. Because he is so almighty, so majestic, so glorified, and I am unworthy. And he falls to his knees, and you see the responsiveness there of Peter realizing that he is in need of something. And that in need of something is much more than fish. It's much more than just those material things. He, in his response, says, I have a spiritual need, and I can't take care of it myself. I am sinful, and I don't deserve to be before you. There is an acknowledgement there of his sin. There's an acknowledgement there of his spiritual condition. And there he is seeking uh, the the blessings of of Christ that are much more than material. It's much more than than a huge catch of fish. It's much deeper. It's much more meaningful. And Peter starts to grasp what it is. That's why I say you see somewhat of maturity there. It's not just getting the healing. It's not just observing the power. It's understanding, comprehending, and then applying it to understand that Christ is there for a bigger and better need in life than just the physical things. He will provide those things, and he did. 
They never went without. They never went without. But they've got to understand and grasp the concept that if they follow God, if they follow Christ, the realization there of the power and glory of Christ, you're going to have success. And it's not just success in the idea of catching fish and and in your jobs or in your homes. It's having success on a much broader, spiritual, meaningful sense. You will have success because Christ is going to bring that to you. Now, look, uh, as they're the call, and I want to go real quickly through this so we can get to the next one uh, with respect to um, uh, the next uh, miracle. Real quick, acting on the faith. Once the four fishermen saw this amazing miracle, the Lord called them to take action. He said, pretty much, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And that concept, of course, is something we preach and we teach. We love that in evangelism classes. We usually go to, to Luke chapter 5 and kind of use that as one of our ring true statements of we've got to be fishers of men. And that concept is, is it's much deeper than just going out and, 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 and conquering. You know, in the Old Testament, that's what it was about, is conquering. Get back in that mindset of the Jewish nation. You know, in order for God to prevail, what happened? Well, nations fell. <laughs> You know, you had Israel that went and conquered this nation. Israel went and conquered that one. They went to the promised land. Joshua, boom, 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 boom. Knocked down nation after nation after nation. It was all about conquering. It was about even about killing. It was about just, you know, taking them over with the power of God. And God was going to show whose side he was on. He was going to show his power and majesty. Well, that philosophy in the way, the mechanics that, that God shows us in the New Testament, kind of changes. You know, going from conqueror to fisherman is kind of drastic. I don't know if in your mind you can kind of imagine that or not. I kind of, in my mind, see the conqueror over here. He's got this full suit of armor on, you know, the chain mail going on. He's got the helmet, of course, on, protect his head. He's got a sword, a dagger. He's got a spear, a shield. You know, he's got those kind of weaponry that's on him. That's kind of what you see in the Old Testament. They might not have the chain mail and that stuff. I exaggerated about that, but um, that's medieval maybe. But you think about the warrior, and then over here you got a fisherman. <laughs> Fisherman's got a fishing pole, maybe some nets. You know, got some nets, got a, a good tackle box. You know, that kind of imagery kind of gets into my mind of, of comparing or really contrasting the two mindsets that you see of how God operates. And what God says to the disciples here in the New Testament, as he calls them to be part of his group, part of his men, part of his, his people that go out and are going to change and conquer the world, they're conquering it as fishermen. They're conquering it as fishermen. And that concept is a very foreign concept. It's kind of strange to think about. In that time period, they probably thought, what, fishers of men? What are you talking about, God? What are you talking about, Jesus? What, what, are, you, what are you saying, fishers of men? That makes really no sense to follow man and be fishers of men. And of course, the lifestyle is going to show what he means by that. He assures Peter and says, hey, you know, don't be fearful anymore. You don't need to be fearful anymore. Because from now on, you're going to be fishing for men. And the, the concept there is a concept of, of reaching out and taking them live. You're going to take your, your prey live versus a hunter, you know, going out and killing and maiming. You know, that's not the way God wants us to take people, is it? No, we don't just throttle them. We don't just take them over. We don't just kill them. We, we want to entice them. We want to hook them. We want to bring them in. And we want them to be live people. Why? So we can change their hearts and minds. So you can help them understand and see the truth the right way. And so here you see that, that Peter starts to slowly sure, uh, see that, that the idea and concept of following after Christ is very enticing. Why? Because they see with Christ they have success. 
Right? They had failure until Jesus arrived on the scene. And so this enticement to follow after me and be fishers of men would have been very alluring, I believe, to them because they see, first of all, who Christ is, what he can do, his power, his glory, his majesty. They understand, at least we see Peter understanding here, his sad state of spiritual health and the fact that he needs Christ. He needs this in his life. And then you see the fulfillment of the idea of of being fulfilled by success. They can be successful with Jesus on their side. It kind of rings true of Romans chapter 8, right? If God be for me, who can be against me? Uh, If God's on our side, hey, you know, we can do anything, right? That's what Jesus is offering to them here. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They had success with his presence. Without him, uh, they caught nothing. The Lord emphasized here not to fear, as I said before. Don't fear. Why? Because the mission and the task is God's call to a great work in the kingdom of God. And it's going to be something much greater, something much bigger, something much better than they may have experienced before. The second large catch of fish is, in, as I said, John chapter 21. And as we see this, this is going to be the third time that Christ actually appears to his disciples. So if you want to flip over there and see John chapter 21, you'll see that it's also on the screen, I believe. Yes, it's still working. After this, Jesus revealed himself, it says there in verse 1. Revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Again, Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, same body of water. I don't want to get into why that is. Just take my word for it. You can do some study on your own. Same place, same body of water uh, you see here. He revealed himself in this way. Second verse. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin or called Didymus in some versions. Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. You'll see here the numbers that were there. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, sons of Zebedee, so that's two. James and John, that's five. Then there's two others unnamed. I feel bad for those guys. We don't know who they are. But two other disciples were there with them. Um, Evidently, John didn't put their names, but that's okay. We see these seven were there. Simon Peter, says verse 3, said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, verse 4, uh, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, verse 5, children, do you have any fish? And they answered and said, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to, to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, by the way. He doesn't like to call himself his name, if you notice in his book. That's John. John, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came to the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but were about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Here you see the second great catch of fish. Contextually here, there's several things to think about uh, that you see here with respect to the, the scripture. Uh, we've already talked about here that the Sea of Tiberias, of course, is the Sea of Galilee. I, I like to look here in verse Three, why did Peter say I'm going fishing? Well, Robert thankfully already alluded to this for us, brought it up, and it's a great point to think about. Contextually, if you look, Christ had died. He had died. He had been crucified. At that point in time, we know what happened to the disciples, right? What did they do? They bolted. 
There were very few that stayed nearby. John stayed nearby according to the, the scripture by Mary. Uh, besides him, it says no others stood by uh, at the cross. Peter, of course, had been near to Christ before the crucifixion occurred. That's when he denied Christ three times, if you remember. Uh, so contextually here, they had deserted Christ. Now, they deserted him possibly in fear of their own lives, and I understand that personal physical fear. Uh, they're not, not necessarily required to stay there at the foot of the cross. Uh, Jesus didn't say that, that they had to be there. He did ask them to be with him in the garden, and we see how that turned out, right? Uh, they're not very good at following directions sometimes. They fall asleep. Uh, they're scared. They're humans. And I, I hate to say, but I think most of us in, the, in that, that situation may have done the same thing. But what they, they fled at the crucifixion, and they started gathering again, of course, in the upper room. They gathered together uh, to pray, uh, to encourage and comfort one another. Their Savior had died on the cross. And what you see here is there is a discouragement, some dispositive type of attitude or despondent type of attitude that you see uh, in the uh, disciples at Christ's crucifixion that they had to deal with. And one of the ways I believe they dealt with it is they thought, well, our Lord's gone. What do we do now? And they went back to what they know and knew very well. And they kind of forsook a lot of the things that Christ had taught them. You know, and thinking yourselves as well. They, God had not given, or Christ had not given them the commission yet to go out and teach. So it's not like they were disobeying Christ. Uh, by not teaching at this point in time. I think sometimes we think badly about them because they weren't out teaching and preaching and standing up for Christ. And, and maybe so, there may be some negativism that we need to throw at their feet for that. But for the most part here, they were gathering, trying to figure out what the next step was. Uh, Christ had prophesied, of course, that he would rise again in three days. I don't think they fully understood that. I don't from the scriptures think that they fully understood what he meant that I would rise again in three days. Uh, because they had never seen that before. Uh, they had seen Christ rise, raise others from the dead. We haven't gotten to those miracles yet, but they themselves probably were perplexed as to what Christ really meant, that this temple is going to be destroyed and I'm going to raise it again in three days. They didn't fully grasp it. We, 2020 hindsight, I'll keep reiterating throughout this class, we've got it. If we fail to understand it, that's our fault. But at this point in time, it's hard for me to fault them for not understanding everything. They tried to. They asked questions. Christ tried to elaborate as he could. But their minds were a little short on knowledge. But what you see here is this despondent attitude led them to go back to, I believe, what they knew best. We kind of do that ourselves, right? Whenever we get discouraged or we get to a point where we just want to pull our hair out or we want to scream at the top of our lungs, we go back and do something that's encouraging to us, that's comforting to us. That's where the idea, by the way, of comfort food comes into play. You know, when we, when we reach that point, that despondent time in our lives, some of us reach for comfort food because it makes us feel good. It reminds us of home. It reminds us of better times or better days. That's the idea here. The comfort food for the disciples was to go back there on the sea where they lived their life for so many years before Christ came and they launched back after Peter said, I'm going to fish. And they said, we're going with you. So the seven of them launched out there to the the lake to go fishing. And then you see Jesus' response here. And I love uh, the fact here of his response and what it shows us, I think, of Christ here. uh, That, you know, after the resurrection, he had appeared to them two other times before. So it's not like this is, is necessarily something new. Understand that. You see in the preceding verses from chapter 21, there were two other times that he presented himself to the disciples before this situation occurred. But here, they didn't know who he was. They saw him from a distance. He wasn't walking to them on the water. Uh, so that that's, that's would not probably ring to them, oh, it's Jesus again walking on the water. You know, we've seen that before. 
that didn't ring true to him. He's calling from a distance. They're only 100 yards off of shore, football field length away, for those of y'all who watched football yesterday. The idea of 100 yards away. He screamed to them out on the water, and they heard him. His, his scream and his, his concern uh, here evoked <coughs> care. It, it evoked a concerning mentality of Christ to them. He called them children. Children. That evokes, obviously, in us something to be concerned, uh, or a sense of concern, a sense of care, love. And you see here that, uh, that he called out to them. He called to them as children. And so you see really this first, I would say, this beautiful scene in this situation is the scene there on, on the, the sea. With Christ calling out to them in concern and care for them, saying, children, have you caught any fish? And they said, no. And then you see the responsive nature to that. You see the idea that, that uh, Christ then tells them to cast their sides on the other side of the boat. Uh, most of us would be scratching our head like, what, how did that matter? Um, you know, I, I read some things as I was studying for this. Whether people really thought this was a miracle or not, it could just be Christ and his providential knowledge, knowing that there were more fish on the other side than one side of the boat. That's why some people say this wasn't a miracle. I don't think it really matters. <laughs> You know, who cares uh, whether or not there was a large amount of fish on the other side of the boat and not on that side? To me, that would be miraculous, too, for Christ being able to separate and say, no fish go over there, you know, y'all go over here, um, and stay on that side of the boat till they cast your net. It doesn't really matter. I think it makes no matter to me. Same thing the first one. Some try to argue that they went into the deeper water. Maybe that Peter, Andrew, James, and John hadn't been in the deeper water all night long. I, I doubt that, too. I mean, if they'd been out there all night fishing, I would think they'd try to go to every port, you know, every part that they could to try and find the fish. So it's, it's hard for me to say these are not miracles. But you see the miraculous here in the effect that Christ had. And the effect on the, the disciples was this. They had strained, they had struggled, they had been unsuccessful once again all night long. He said, hey, y'all just throw your nets on the other side. I could see the disciples maybe on the boat kind of scratching their head thinking, who is this guy telling us this? They don't recognize him. It's in the dead of night. You know, it's dark. It's, it's likely where they could only see a silhouette possibly. May not have recognized his voice. And that kind of goes to the argument of, do we recognize or was Jesus in his full figure after he was resurrected? You know, was he really uh, able to be seen? How did he sound? Did he sound different? Did he look different? Uh, those kind of questions, which we're not going to explore. We don't have time anyways. They heard him say, cast them on the other side. They cast the net down there. They pulled up this large amount of fish, as we see in the scriptures here. A large amount of fish pulled up. We even got the number, 153 fish that were in this net, and they dragged it to shore. Uh, but you see this scene, I think, of being a marvelous scene of this, this inquiry. And then you see the reaction, and I love this reaction. You know, those of us who kind of like to think about things and uh, to think about um, how this would kind of play out like let's say it was a movie going on in our, our minds and we're thinking of how this would look. John first realizes, by the way, he's the first one. John realizes first this is the Lord. When they pull, start pulling up the fish, they, I could just kind of see the deja vu clicking maybe in some of their minds. I, just, I can't help but think, man, this is so much like it was before. This happened again. And John's like, that's the Lord on the, on the shore. And then he turned to Peter and said, you know, he's the one who said, Peter, this is the Lord. And Peter, and I love, there's so many times I'm like Peter. Uh, if I had to say that I'm one of the apostles that I'm probably more like, it's probably Peter. I have open mouth insert foot syndrome. 
Uh, sometimes I, I leap before I think about it. Sometimes my faith falters even when I'm in the midst of something that's extraordinary. You know, Peter's like me a lot of ways. Peter hears it's the Lord. He's kind of, by the way, when they say he's stripped for fishing, I don't mean he's naked, by the way. Um, you know, I think when we read that, when I first read that, I thought, well, well the dude's just stripping out there, you know, fishing. No, that's you know what it is. They have overcoats. They have other clothes that they would put on. He didn't want to leave anything behind, so he, he likely put it on. Also, some commentators would say that the idea of approaching majesty or approaching someone with authority, you know, like a, a higher level official, if you were to go, say, in your undergarments, that were still clothes. I mean, you're still fully clothed, but there are more undergarments. And you went, that would be disgraceful. It would be something to show that you have lack of concern or love for the person. Uh, it could also show that you don't, you're, you're kind of disrespectful. And so Peter, more than likely, threw on his overcoat because he didn't want to be disrespectful to the Lord. But yet when he threw on his overcoat, he jumped in the water. You know, I can just see this man jumping in there with all of his clothes on, getting soaking wet. And running somewhat, I don't know if he could really fit, I mean, depending on how deep it was, I guess whether he could swim or not, to get there as fast as he could. Not only that, he left everybody behind to do the work in the boat. You see the responsive, I think, nature of Peter here showing us a drastic comparison of really his timidness before, his contriteness before. He was unworthy to meet the Lord before. And here you see he was eager to meet the Lord. And ultimately, what you see in this miracle is what underscores, I think, the previous miracle as well. God will provide. Jesus will provide. They, they reach the shore, and what they see is the fire already set. Bread there on the fire. Fish on the fire. He says, bring some of your fish to me. Uh, I want you to bring it over here as well. But he was already prepared. He was already prepared there to in, embrace them and welcome them and to provide for them. And, of course, after this, by the way, as an epilogue, I think that you look at the very last part of chapter 21, of course, is what a lot of us like to look to uh, and call somewhat of Peter's redemption with Christ. And you see the fact that that's whenever Christ looked at Peter across the fire and said, you know, Peter, do you love me? He says, you know I do, Lord. He said, feed my sheep. Ask him three times. Very ironically, I think, and there's a lot of people speculate. He asked him three times because he denied him three times. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate but I love the way the book of John ends. Because the book of John here in chapter 21 ends with Christ showing them his power, his authority, his majesty through miracles and showing him his love, concern, and his providing, not just through the miracle, but by how he acts and what he says here in the book. Appreciate y'all's kind of attention this morning. Next week, we're going to look, if you'll see, relying on the faith of others. There's two good parables. I mean, two, I use parables again. Two good miracles we're going to look at next week. The healing of the paralytic man and the healing of the daughter of the Canaanite woman. Y'all got those passages in your handouts. Please study them, look at them. We'll jump in here next week. Appreciate it.